Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Jack of Ireland, a medieval outlaw. Medieval outlaws have captured the human imagination for centuries. The story of Robin Hood, who famously robbed from the rich to give to the poor, has proved the most enduring. The tale of Robin Hood, however, is far from the reality of a medieval outlaw. Most were ruthless individuals. Many were willing to rob from the rich, but few, if any, ever gave their bounty to the poor. While we associate outlaws with figures like Robin Hood, the term itself referred to someone who, because of their crimes, had been placed outside the law no longer protected by it and therefore could be killed by anyone with impunity. Today's show is about one Irishman who is an outlaw in all but name. While Jack of Ireland would avoid being ever declared an outlaw, his life gives a much better sense of what medieval outlaws were like rather than the often recounted tales of Robin Hood. His story is a real-life tale of an Irishman who terrorised the north of England, living well beyond the bounds of what was legal, but was also protected by friends in very high places. The idea for today's podcast began when I read an article by Jules Frusher on her website, ladydispensersscribbery.com. The podcast also heavily relied on another article by Andy King called Jack the Irish and the Abduction of Lady Clifford that was published in the Journal of Northern History in 2001. The story of Jack of Ireland is set along the frontier between the kingdoms of England and Scotland in and around 1315. Now this was a pretty bleak place to find yourself. So first I'm going to begin the show by explaining a bit about this world where sieges, warfare and lawlessness were rife. The frontiers between England and Scotland were a truly terrifying place in the year 1315. During the previous summer, the Scots had crushed the armies of the English king, Edward II, at the Battle of Bannockburn. Not only had thousands been killed, but several prominent English nobles had been killed or captured. 
Since then, the English have been on the back foot, leading to a major crisis. In the aftermath of the battle, King Edward II fled south back to safety in England, leaving the border regions vulnerable to Scots' attacks. To make matters worse, 1315 saw the onset of the worst food shortages in the late Middle Ages. Faced with the threat of war, the starving population did what they had to to survive. As food soared in price, chroniclers in the border county of Northumbria reported how dogs, horses and other unclean things were eaten. This situation along the frontier continued to deteriorate throughout the summer of 1315, one of the worst in England's medieval history. The Scottish king, Robert the Bruce, took full advantage of the English weakness. While he dispatched his brother Edward to lead a massive invasion of Ireland, he himself led an army across the border and laid siege to the English frontier town of Carlisle. If you want to hear more about that invasion of Ireland, check out my Fatal Feuds podcast series at my website irishhistorypodcast.ie. Now King Robert's army was well prepared with siege equipment and they quickly set about breaking through the town walls of Carlisle. The Lanarkost Chronicle tells us the Scots made long ladders which they brought with them for scaling the wall in different places simultaneously. They also constructed large siege towers to push against the walls. These efforts ended in failure when the massive siege towers sank into the moat. Eventually, after nearly two weeks, the siege ended with a Scottish retreat. But the future for the people who lived along the frontiers was bleak. King Edward II was in no position to counter future Scottish raids, given he was still reeling from that terrible defeat at the Battle of Bannockburn. To make matters worse, the English monarch had always been heavily reliant on soldiers from Ireland. However, by the summer of 1315, the Norman lords of Ireland had their own problems, since the Scots had invaded Ulster earlier in the summer. There would be no support from Ireland. However, there was an exception to this as a handful of Irishmen stationed along the frontier were already making a reputation for themselves, leading attacks into Scotland. These men, and more importantly, their soon-to-be-notorious leader, a man only known as Jack of Ireland, would prove themselves a double-edged sword to frontier communities. While they could attack the Scots, they were not exactly knights in shining armour. Indeed, by the time they were done, Many would wish they had never crossed the Irish Sea. In the space of two years, Jack and his men would be rewarded for daring attacks against the Scots, but were also implicated in robberies, murder and the kidnapping of one of the most prominent women in the border regions. Before we look at Jack's deeds and misdeeds in England, it's worth tracing his life back in Ireland, a place that prepared him for the chaotic world of frontier life in England. While Jack of Ireland would become something of a renowned figure in the north of England in late 1315, his origins are murky and obscure. Born sometime in the late 13th century, his name alludes to a possible identity that would have prepared him for the difficulties of life in northern England. While he is normally referred to as Jack of Ireland, or in some cases John of Ireland, one account does refer to him as Jack le Irish de Hibernia. This means Jack the Irishman of Ireland. While this might seem to be stating the obvious, there is some hidden meaning in this strange name that seems to repeat itself. You see, in the 14th century, there was more than just one type of Irish person. 
To say you lived in Ireland meant very little, given there were three distinct groups emerging in society. The first group were the Gaelic Irish, often referred to as the Irish, and were descendants of the original natives of the island. Then there were the old Anglo-Norman families who, by Jack's time, had been living in Ireland for well over a century. They increasingly referred to themselves as the Middle Nation or the English of Ireland. They were neither seen as completely English nor were they Irish. And then finally there was the third group, the recently arrived colonists and royal officials who had been born in England and saw themselves as English. Therefore, in this context, when Jack is referred to as an Irish man of Ireland, it would indicate he was at least born into a Gaelic Irish background. However, identity at birth didn't necessarily dictate what happened later in life. Large numbers of Gaelic Irish men transitioned to the Anglo-Norman world when they were granted the rights and protections of Norman law, something not entitled to them at birth. If Jack did this, it could explain how a man born into a Gaelic Irish family could find himself serving the English kings on the borders of Scotland. While this background may have been less than usual in England, the world he had grown up in had similarities to frontier life. As those of you who have read my book 1348 A Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland, will know, Ireland in the late 13th and early 14th century was a place of spiralling violence and increasing lawlessness. The island was riven with frontiers and shifting alliances between the Gaelic Irish and the Anglo-Normans, and an individual like Jack would have been well used to the complexities of violence and frontier life. Having grown up in Ireland, when Jack arrived on the frontiers of Scotland, he was more than able for the chaotic environment, and indeed he thrived. Not long after the defeat at Bannockburn, he captured a Scottish knight, John Stockaw, and brought him back to England as a prisoner. Indeed, Jack wasn't long in the region when, in April 1315, he received the medieval equivalent of a promotion when he was brought into the king's household as a yeoman perhaps one of the few Gaelic Irishmen of the late Middle Ages to rise to such a position. However, Jack wasn't a valiant knight by any stretch of the imagination. While we can't be sure it's the same man, in 1308 another person of that name was involved in a brutal torture and robbery of a wealthy individual in Somerset, England. On that occasion the robbers, who included someone of the same name, and now I'm going to quote royal records, pierced the feet with a hot iron, burned the face to the bone in five places with the iron. Whether or not this is the same person we will never know, but the brutality shown at the event would seem to be in character with our Jack. By August 1315 he was going from strength to strength and he was joined by a few dozen members of his own extended family forming a serious fighting force along the Scottish frontier. Not long after their arrival, the dangers of this world that they now found themselves in was made abundantly clear when Jack was lucky to escape with his life. The situation along the border was fraught, to say the least. Invasion from Scotland could literally happen at any moment. In this environment, rumours could prove lethal. In the late summer of 1315, rumours abounded that the inhabitants of Northumbria were going to betray the border town of Berwick-on-Tweed to the Scots for a cash payment. The truth of this rumour is not known, but the inhabitants of the town were fearful and outraged. As panic spread throughout Berwick-upon-Tweed, 
suspected traitors from Northumbria were tried and one was even executed. This execution in turn created outrage and in reaction one leading Northumbrian, John the Lilburn, threatened to kill any man he found from Berwick. At this point, Jack found himself front and centre in this dispute because he was tasked with protecting one of the judges responsible for the execution. It was somewhat inevitable that as Jack and this judge travelled through rural Northumbria, they were attacked in an assassination attempt and only survived when the constable from the nearby Allenwick Castle came to their rescue. While this close encounter with death would have unnerved many, Jack was by no means perturbed. Indeed, he appears to have made no attempt to assuage the hatred the local community may have had towards him. Around this time, he and his men were stationed in the sprawling fortification of Bamberg Castle, and reports emerged that they were robbing supplies from the local community. While this may well have consigned many to death in what was a time of famine, it is worth noting that such practices were pretty commonplace. The provisioning of soldiers in the Middle Ages was at the best of times a messy business that often left them to fend for themselves by stealing food. Undoubtedly, as 1315 drew to a close, it was clear that the border region was effectively a war zone where law and order had limited influence. In this environment, Jack began to dream of power and position beyond what he could ever have hoped for in a normal society. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the podcast. By August 1315, Jack of Ireland's star was rising. The war had undoubtedly been profitable for him. He had gone from a soldier to being a yeoman in the king's household. However, this advancement was tenuous to say the least. Edward II was the weakest king to sit the throne of England since the Norman conquest. There was widespread opposition to him that stretched back to the earliest days of his reign after his coronation in 1308. Furthermore, it was unruly retainers, men normally living outside the law, individuals just like Jack that were increasingly becoming the focal point of criticism of the king. Now Edward could easily be forced to dispense with individuals like Jack. Indeed a few years earlier his own nobles had even forced him to sign the death warrant of his friend and probable lover Piers Gaveston. Jack clearly needed to develop and solidify an independent power base, one that would allow him not to be so dependent on King Edward II. Unsurprisingly, 
Given the world he lived in, an opportunity soon presented itself in a moment of crisis. On the 12th of August, 1315, Guy de Beaucamp, the Earl of Warwick, died. The Earl had been King Edward II's greatest opponent. Having been instrumental in executing the King's confidant and lover, Piers Gaveston, Edward was happy to see the back of his enemy. However, Guy's death left him with a major strategic problem. His death weakened the King's already crumbling position along the Scottish frontier, given he had been Lord of Barnard Castle, a crucial fortification situated just 60 miles from the border. Something had to be done. Three days after the Earl of Warwick's death, Edward II placed Jack of Ireland in charge of Barnard Castle. Now this was probably only a temporary measure. The Earl's heir was still a child and the entire estate would be administered by Edward's officials until he was an adult. Undoubtedly Edward would come up with some form of long-term arrangement but there was scarcely a better man to wield what would be a much needed sword than Jack while a more permanent solution was sorted out. With this appointment as constable of the major fortification that was Barnard Castle, Jack now saw opportunities to make his rise in society permanent as he began to fixate on one of the wealthiest individuals in the surrounding region, the widow Matilda de Clifford. Her husband Robert had been Lord Warden of the Marches or Frontiers with Scotland and responsible for maintaining peace along the border. He, however, had been killed in that fateful battle of Bannockburn. While his death left Matilda a wealthy woman, she was also a powerful figure in her own right as she hailed from the de Clare family. Her siblings and cousins included the Lord of Thomond in Ireland, the Earl of Gloucester in England and the Baroness of Badlesmere. In Matilda, Jacks are the perfect match for his seemingly boundless aspirations. If he could marry her, her vast wealth would pass into his hands. She would also transform him into a powerful figure in his own right. The question was, how could he achieve this marriage? Matilda herself was not likely to be interested in a union with a man who was several rungs below her on the social ladder. However, Jack had spent two years in the lawless frontiers where actions and violence were the rule of law. Matilda's powerful relations, the royal court and even the king undoubtedly seemed far away. In this context, Jack decided he would take a huge gamble. He would kidnap Lady Matilda bring her to Barnard Castle and forcibly marry her. Once they were married, there was little anyone could do. From Jack's perspective, what did he have to lose? Law was increasingly a remote concept along the frontier. The king had already overlooked numerous transgressions. What was one more on top of this? While this might seem like a crazy scheme, such acts weren't unheard of in the late Middle Ages. Indeed, back in Ireland, several members of the Lapuere family had kidnapped the wealthy widow, Margaret Berkeley in 1311 with the intention of forcibly marrying her to one of their own. On that occasion they had only failed when a member of their own family had stopped the proceedings. However, while there was a precedent, Jack was running the risk of being prosecuted or, if things went wrong and he fled, being declared an outlaw. Regardless of this, in early November Jack made his move. As Lady Matilda was travelling through the nearby town of Bowes, he and his gang seized her and brought her back to Barnard Castle. In this act, he had crossed a Rubicon of sorts. Either his star would rise dramatically, or he could fall very far, very fast. Jack undoubtedly knew the reaction at Edward II's court was the all-important decision. 
King Edward had been known to allow some of his supporters away with flagrant abuses of the law. That said, while he was willing to overlook what often seemed like endless transgressions in the lawless north, Jack of Ireland had pushed this to the very limit. The very foundations of medieval society were based on property relations which were underpinned by class boundaries and now Jack of Ireland had just cut through all of this in one move. This along with the fact that Matilda's brother-in-law Bartholomew Badlesmere was increasingly influential at court prompted King Edward II to move immediately. This act could not be tolerated. Once he heard the king dispatched William de Montacute, a rising star at court north with a force of three knights and 36 squires. Even though Jack and his men had the advantage of being inside the walls of Barnard Castle, Lady Matilda's rescuers had the all-important king's authority backing them. What happened when Montacute arrived is not clear. But if there was a conflict, it didn't last long because by December the 6th, William de Montacute had returned to King Edward II's court having successfully rescued Matilda. For his pains, Jack was stripped of the custody of Barnard Castle and now he risked prosecution and possibly even the noose. Things didn't look good. Indeed, as he was forced from the castle, an investigation as to whether he had been helping himself to the castle stores was also launched. However, while he had gambled and lost spectacularly, quite remarkably, the story of Jack of Ireland didn't end there. He didn't face the noose nor was he outlawed. Scarcely a few weeks after this incident, the Scottish king, Robert the Bruce, launched a fresh attack across the border, this time targeting the town of Berwick-on-Tweed, from both land and sea. If anything served to remind Edward II of his need of a man like Jack of Ireland, this was it. Indeed, it does seem likely that Jack was involved in the successful defence of Berwick in January 1316, because a few months later, the constable of Berwick petitioned the king regarding Jack's wages. After this, however, the rigours of Jack's life began to catch up on him. By 1317, he was seriously ill, staying in the Gilbertine Priory of St. Catherine in Lincoln. However, even as he lingered in pain in the Priory, his connections at court still remained strong. King Edward II went as far as sending £6, quite a considerable sum of money at the time, to pay for medicine for Jack. However, even in spite of this, Jack of Ireland perished in the Priory at some point in 1317. Jack of Ireland had lived a life where he was an outlaw in all but name. However, he, like many others at the time, had sins of the past waived because of the needs of war. Indeed, back in Ireland during this period, the court rolls contained page after page of pardons handed out for men serving in armies fighting the Scots. Outlawed or not, Jack of Ireland earned his notoriety. But he wasn't alone. The frontiers of Scotland and indeed much of Ireland in this period had become an increasingly violent society where conflict was part and parcel of daily life. It was somewhat inevitable, therefore, that men skilled with the sword, who often only had a passing respect for the law, would rise in prominence. It was also inevitable that the powers that be would be willing to pardon their offences given the needs of war. Next week, I'll hopefully be bringing the first of the Mam Trasna podcasts out. That's going to be telling the story of one of the most brutal murders in Ireland in the 19th century. Until then, Sloan.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.